0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make and break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich.
1: And I'm John Risbold.
0: And our topic today is going to be depositions. Um, And we had a great guest today, someone I've worked, uh, honestly, against a lot uh, back in the past when I was a defense attorney, and Margaret Battersby Black, she's a partner at Levin and And, you know, we kind of went through how to establish a well-sourced framework Uh, for your deposition, how to plan for your deposition, set goals, and ultimately execute and achieve those goals. Now, Margaret's background, similar to mine, is more in the nursing home, medical malpractice realm, but these deposition techniques and these insights, I I believe, can be applied to any case that you have because there are always um, rules out there. There's always frameworks for things that are supposed to be done or not done, and really the idea is to establish a well-sourced framework Uh, for what's supposed to happen and then use the facts of the case to show violations of that framework Um, one of my big takeaways from talking with margaret is sometimes when you're deposing a witness you you think you know what the answer is going to be and then the witness says something completely different and margaret's advice and something I, i completely agree with is go with the unexpected answers don't try to you know circle back to the witness ask it over and over and over again to get the answer you want take their answer especially if it's something that doesn't make sense and take it to its you know most extreme most illogical conclusion because honestly that's going to be more effective at trial than you circling back and trying to you know hammer them and it ends up making you looking bad it ends up making the witness look better than they should under the circumstances and you're not doing the case uh, a service by doing that
1: yeah, I think that her point is, is spot on. It's the difference between a good deposition and a great deposition is the ability to pivot when you get an answer you don't expect. I think a lot of lawyers, and I was guilty of this when I was a younger lawyer, um, would stick religiously to their outline and didn't listen as much as they should. Um, and then I started doing a lot of toxic tort asbestos work uh, early in my career, and we were taking dozens upon dozens of depositions every month. And you really had to learn to listen very, very carefully and pick apart what the witness is saying and use it against them. And I think that's, that's something that Margaret and her firm does very, very well in a med mal or nursing home context, for sure.
0: Another important to make, point to make, particularly in a medical case or a nursing home case, is when you're dealing not with the administrative people, but you're dealing with the people who are providing the hands-on care. You know, a lot of times you get some very nice people, some very caring people who are kind of stuck in this system where they're not given the tools that they need to provide the care they want to provide to their patients or their residents. And an effective way to kind of approach that type of deposition, once you see what kind of a person they are, once you see that they're a caring uh, caregiver, is you want to kind of be on their side. And the way that you do that is you kind of embrace them a little bit, you you ask them about their concerns, you ask them about, any issues they have with the facility. And you'll be surprised about the answers that you get. I mean, because these people a lot of most people, generally speaking, they want they want to be honest, they want to be forthright. They want to tell the truth and they want to do well for the patients that they're caring for. And if you ask them the right questions in the right way, the the things you can get out of them will will genuinely astound you and they can really turn your case and take it to the next level.
1: Yeah, that's that's huge too. You can take defense witnesses and witnesses that the defense thinks they can rely on. And you can make them cornerstone witnesses in your own case, just by being honest and real with them and letting them do the same. I mean, you're right, people want to be honest and truthful, they will tell you the truth nine times out of 10. And when they don't, it's painfully obvious, people think that they're getting away with something when they're lying in a deposition. And it it becomes painfully obvious. And so I think that you know, today's interview. There are a lot of really, really good techniques for covering all of your bases, for finding rule violations, for turning witnesses against the defense. I think, or using them in your own case. And I just, I mean, I can't speak highly enough about Margaret and what a tremendous attorney she is, and the the high level of of depositions that they take. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about this one,
0: and not only about getting admissions. So getting admissions not only is going to improve. Ah, uh, your case as far as liability, as far as getting that kind of testimony out of the defense witnesses' mouths, but it's also going to make it hard to impossible for them to find credible expert witnesses. So, I mean, the, not only are you strengthening, you know, the fact aspect of your case, but you're strengthening the the retained expert aspect of your case as well, because they're not going to have an adequate foundation to base any opinions if you have a bunch of fact witnesses, a bunch of nurses, you know, caregivers. CNAs saying I didn't do what I was supposed to do and then you have hire an expert witness to say oh no They absolutely did they just didn't ta- They just don't know what they're talking about I mean think about that Yeah, and what kind of a position are you putting the defense in by getting those admissions? I mean it's effective on every level And it really takes your case and makes it you know bulletproof for lack of a better word
1: And to that end one thing that stood out in in the interview uh, with margaret is You know, she uses the phrase if it didn't if it wasn't charted it didn't happen And I think that's a really important thing to always keep in mind with a med malin nursing home case when you get to experts, because experts will say, no, they did everything right, even though it's not in the chart, even though they didn't mark down that they turned and repositioned every hour, they did everything right to prevent a pressure sore. Well, that's not exactly uh, or even remotely close to the truth. And you can use, like you're saying, you can use those prior statements with the experts on the stand. You can have the expert on the stand, the defense expert, and simply just go through, did you read this deposition of nurse John Smith? Did you hear when John Smith said that he didn't do X, Y, and Z? That would have been important in forming your opinion, right? And you can destroy the credibility of these witnesses by using the defense witnesses.
0: Absolutely. Ah. In addition... Uh, Margaret's techniques that she talked about a little for dealing with a quote unquote unprepared witness. Uh, she had a different phrase for it, but I'm going to stick with unprepared witness. It, they're really amazing. I'm not going to step on them. Just listen, take notes, write this stuff down. It's effective. I've I've uh, seen it work. I've seen deposition transcripts of hers where she has done this to witnesses and it is, it, it is a thing uh, to marvel at and it's something that everyone can incorporate in their, their practice to make their depositions more effective.
1: Yeah, uh, this is other, an episode you listen to with a notebook in front of you, for sure. Like, I I took copious amounts of notes and I've known Margaret for a long time. I've seen uh, her in deposition. I've seen transcripts as well. And you still, you can always learn something, always be learning. And this was a, this is one I learned a lot. It was great.
0: And something, when, when I made the transition from, you know, defense to plaintiff, and one thing I really tried to take with me Uh, from dealing with her and her firm for so many times, is when you're deposing a defense witness, you don't stop at liability. You get pain and disability testimony too. Because that is so important to your case to have defense witnesses describe the pain, describe the disability, describe, you know, like she talked about the wound, about, you know, visceral sensory aspects of what it's like to have a wound. I mean, that can be incredible testimony at trial. That can be incredibly damaging testimony and it's something that you're really missing out. And if you're not doing that with these defense witnesses.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm really excited to dive in again with, I think, one of the best lawyers in all of Chicago, but certainly in this area, you know, Med Mount Nursing Home. This is, uh, you know, sort of the cream of the crop. So this is Margaret Battersby Black, and she's going to talk with Matt about depositions. Really, really excited.
0: Today, we're going to be talking with Margaret Battersby-Black. Margaret is a partner at Levin and in Chicago, where she represents injured victims and their families in personal injury, medical malpractice, and nursing home negligence cases. In 2019, Margaret was recognized by the Illinois Jury Verdict Reporter as a lawyer who settled the most cases over $500,000, totaling 24 settlements above this threshold over the year. She has also achieved tremendous success at trial, including an Illinois record sending $4.1 million nursing home jury verdict on behalf of an 85 year old woman injured in a nursing home when her medications were mismanaged. Margaret is heavily involved with the trial lawyers' associations on the state, local, and national level and is a sought after speaker on trial work generally and nursing home cases specifically. Margaret, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And the topic I'm going to be talking about today is depositions. And I really wanted to have you on for this particular topic. Um, having spent years on the receiving end of many of these depositions, I've uh, seen how effective you and the other members of your firm can be. And I thought this would be a great topic for you to talk about.
2: Okay. Well, I, I'm going to take that as a compliment.
0: <laughs> I, I would take it as one too.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> so when it comes to depositions, obviously it all starts with preparation Getting in the right mindset and establishing goals. Um, And part of that preparation is going to be finding rules and finding sources of rules. Uh, What do you do in your practice to find those rules? And uh, what are some some sources that you use uh, for depositions, uh, for rules at your depositions?
2: So um, I think before we get there, I want to go back to what you said that you should be taking depositions with a goal or a purpose in mind, because I feel that so many depositions are taken with no purpose. And, and I will say that that isn't the way we practice at our firm. And, you know, if there's a deposition that you're taking and you don't know why, or you don't know what your purpose is, then it shouldn't be taken. Um, so you've, you've hit the nail on the head with that. And obviously if you're going to take it and you're going to have a purpose, you need to prepare And so I think where we get into the depositions where rules are important, um, most of my practice consists of nursing home and medical malpractice cases. So those are depositions where um, I'm going to decide what the purpose is before I take those depositions. And if the purpose is to establish rules and establish uh, admissions of um, employees of facilities, then um, I'm going to know what all of those rules are ahead of time. So if I were um, looking at a nursing home case, there's many sources I can go to to establish rules. Um, Each nursing home will have their set of policies and procedures. Uh, There are state and federal regulations that apply to nursing homes. And then um, there are known standards of nursing care that apply. And so um, for my practice over the years and working with um, experts and in just Kind of learning what standards apply. I know some of those in, in advance in my head. I mean, for example, um, I'm always going to ask if it's a, a pressure sore or a fall case, um, whether the nurses are supposed to assess the resident's risk for falls or pressure sores. And I'm always going to get a yes to that question. And if I don't get a yes to that question, um, I think we'll, we'll probably be covering this topic later on But I don't look at that as a negative, I look at it as an opportunity to then take it a step further. Um, Where we um, get into a little bit of a um, grayer area is in medical malpractice cases. Um, The first source that I would look to if it was a hospital defendant would be policies and procedures. And then um, there's a lot of medical literature out there. And so depending on the specialty of the um, defendant that you're deposing, a nurse, a doctor, an OB, um, a surgeon, many of those different um, practice areas and specialties have their own standards or membership organizations. So if you can get your hands on some of their publications, um, very often you'll get agreements that um, some of the procedures or, or, or theories or hypotheses of their papers establish a reasonable rule or a reasonable standard of care. And then um, for medical malpractice cases, it's really important to talk with your own expert witness before you go into a deposition and have them tell you what the rule is. And, you know, while they may not know that they're doing it, they probably have already done this for you by giving you a 6 2 report in Illinois um, or giving their kind of pass on the merit review as to what they see as the negligence. So when you're going back through your notes of what they said start thinking of it in the form of rules. And before you go to the deposition, make sure that the rule that you've come up with based on their opinions is a rule that they're willing to testify to at trial, because then you can kind of weave that rule in through all of the depositions. And when your expert goes to testify at trial, kind of lock it up with that testimony.
0: So once you've uh, done your preparation for the deposition, uh, you're getting ready um, are you a proponent of having a set script or kind of a more loose outline uh, to have with you when you're going in to do your depositions?
2: So I think um, I think it depends. When I was a younger lawyer and I was a little less experienced, um, I very often had a pretty detailed outline. Now, I would find myself totally off of that outline, which is exactly where I should have been. Because if you get an answer and a question on a deposition and you're too focused with with following your outline, you may miss an opportunity. Um, But I don't think that it's a bad thing, particularly when you're a younger lawyer, to have an outline to come back to or to make sure that you're kind of checking off all of the boxes. Um, I think that the way that I practice now is I definitely have something written for every day. I have some outline and it depends on how technical the case is as to whether that outline is more detailed or less detailed. Um, But there would be things that I would advocate for making sure you do write out. So if you want to make sure that you establish rules um, that your expert is going to testify to at trial and you want to get those rules right, I think you should write those rules out. Um, If you want to establish um, predicates that are leading up to a rule, I'm not saying you have to put every word on a piece of paper, but you would definitely want some outline of the order in which you're going to start asking questions to lead up to getting an agreement on a rule. Um, I think when you're talking about more general topics or um, you're, you're going to show medical records, I'm less worried about a script because I think usually the answers to the questions end up forming the basis for follow-ups. You know, the other thing is, is when you're a new lawyer or a less experienced lawyer, um, just getting some of the basic questions out can be intimidating. So I used to write questions out like, would you agree that the standard of care is what a reasonably careful nurse would do in the same or similar circumstance?" I obviously don't need to do that anymore. Um, and there's a, a whole other kind of area that I think we're going to cover later where I know what a... I know what a defense is going to be in a case when I'm taking a death before they even say it. So I have certain pre-written scripts that are now in my head, but if they give me an answer, such as when you're familiar with from defending nursing homes for so long, that um, even though they uh, provided the care, they didn't document it. Then I'm going to go through my whole string of uh, cross-examination on how haven't you ever heard the phrase, if it's not documented, it's not done? And what does that mean? And you've taught this in nursing school. So when I was a younger lawyer, I used to think of those defenses and all the things I would need to then cross-examine on to to take that defense out. I don't really need to do that anymore. It's kind of in my head. So I think it's really um, a matter of, of preference. But one thing that I would caution people about when you have a script or an outline is, to be open-minded and to stray from that script if you get the opportunity or if you need to, to follow up on something that maybe you hadn't thought of that was, you know, a gift that a witness just gave you and you need to um, take even further.
0: We talked a little bit earlier about uh, taking depositions with a purpose and some attorneys are more on the, uh, have the mindset of that depositions are a fact gathering exercise and some are more in the mindset of a deposition should be across, like you would be crossing, cross-examining them at trial. Where are you on that continuum?
2: Well, I say I'm probably farther to the continuum of getting uh, adverse examination questions for trial. And I mean, for the most part, I don't need to gather facts in a deposition. I already know the facts and I wanna get admissions. But I will say that there there are depositions that are more fact-based, and I I have learned facts in depositions that aren't written in the medical records. I find this to be more common in medical cases where, um, particularly like in a teaching hospital. So in a teaching hospital, if there's residents and attendings and nurses, it's hard sometimes to figure out who communicated what to whom, who's in charge, and things like that. So there are depositions that can be taken for fact-gathering purposes, but I would say it's rare that that that's the sole purpose. So part of the debt may be to get facts in the beginning that will lead up to what the questions are that are going to lock in your admissions for trial or adverse exam. Um, But it, it it really should be judged on a case by case basis. And, and then when we start getting into um, a, a different area, which is expert witnesses, you know, that is a whole nother animal because there are many people out there who think that the purpose of an expert witness deposition is to Um, basically decimate the witness to make them a witness that the other side doesn't want to call at trial or a witness that is starting to look like they should be testifying for your side instead of the other side. Um, I think if you can do that, you know, that sounds like a good idea, but you have to determine that based on a case-by-case basis. So for example, if the witness is a witness who, you know, has testified hundreds of times, even probably tens of times against you and is never going to flip, Um, then you would take a different approach. So sometimes I will take an expert deck where I have a real pro on the other side where all I'm trying to do is find out what the experts' um, bases for their opinions are. Because very often they're making assumptions or they've missed things or not read things or not been told things. And I know that, and I know that if I can at least lock those admissions in at the depth, about what their factual basis is, then when we get to trial, I can probably you know, surprise them with a couple of questions based on those facts that they're going to look silly if they answer in a way that's different than when I wanted to. So I think experts are kind of their own animal, but for a fact witness, um, I don't really see a point of establishing facts that you can get through the medical records in a deposition if that's all you're going to do. Um, one of the things that I would say that applies to very often is treaters. So I've never been able to figure out um, why so many defense lawyers want to depose treaters where all they're going to do is, is have them read their medical records. My opinion as a plaintiff's lawyer, unless I know that that expert or that treater is going to really go to bat for me um, because maybe I've talked to them in advance or maybe, you know, they've written a scathing note and I know they have strong opinions. I'm not going to, risk allowing the defense lawyer to ask them how many comorbidities my client has, or to surprise me with some opinions that when they come from a treater might be more credible to a jury. So I'm just not going to take that treater step. Um, So I think you really have to examine each each deponent and each case differently and make a determination. But I think on the whole, um, just to take a deposition to establish facts that you already know is silly.
0: Something that occurs with uh, certain deponents is they come to you, they show up to their deposition, and they haven't really prepared. Uh, They haven't read the records. They have no recollection. And the lawyer hasn't really, the defense attorney hasn't really shown them anything to help refresh their recollection. How do you deal with these unprepared witnesses?
2: I mean, I could probably spend the whole podcast on telling you the different tactics that would be used. But let me just start by using the example of a named defendant in a medical case or a nursing home case. Um, As you know, in those cases, when uh, a care provider, whether it's a, a doctor, a nurse, or otherwise, is served at their home with a complaint, they probably become upset, right? And they want to read the lawsuit and see what this is about and see if they remember the patient and you know, they probably in their minds are trying to come up with answers right then and there because it's not a fun thing to be served with a lawsuit, especially if you consider yourself to be a good doctor or a good nurse or a caring, you know, health care provider, etc. cetera. The other thing is, is that plaintiffs are required when they file these lawsuits to attach a health professional's report. And that's also called a, a 622 report commonly amongst us plaintiff's lawyers And so right there in the complaint when you're served is a a list of allegations that the plaintiff is saying um, you did or failed to do and that you're negligent or you're not a reasonably careful doctor because of them. So when someone comes to a deposition and they, I'll just call it playing dumb, you're calling it being unprepared and being nice, but I'm going to call it playing dumb. Um, You have to probe a little to see how dumb they're going to play. And at some point, if they're really playing dumb, and they're really saying things that they don't know, or they haven't reviewed, or, you know, that they have no opinion on, um, I take them back to receiving that lawsuit and being served. And, you know, you, this is the first time you were sued, and it was upsetting. And you wanted to know what allegations your patient was making, and you wanted to know what happened. And you were curious. And, you know, the best um, thing you have is your memory. And and when you got this lawsuit, did you remember the patient? And if you didn't remember the patient, then wouldn't you want to look at the medical records and, ha- and have your memory enhanced and try to get to the bottom of what happened and what allegations were making, uh, being made against you so that you could defend them. And so then I kind of go through all the steps in the process. And in a medical case, it, it's, it is probable that the first time I'm going to depose a doctor in the case is after probably a year's worth of motion practice and discovery and other depositions before I get to uh, that defendant doctor. And so I, I sort of just put it out there and I say, I mean, doctor so-and-so, sometimes you have to get up, get the complaint, bring the complaint into the deposition and say, Dr. So-and-so, did you realize that one of the allegations that I'm making against you in this case is that you didn't obtain a neurological consultant for this patient who had uh, no mobility and had numbness in their legs? You know, and then what, honestly, what do they say to that? If they say, yeah, I realized that, but I just didn't even look at the records and I didn't, you know, look at the orders and I didn't look at my assessments, it's just going to sound silly. So the first thing I do is I make them look silly. Then I establish that they're giving their deposition today, which is three, four, sometimes even five years after everything happened, and they've already told me that they don't have an independent memory. And so the only way that they could come back into the deposition and defend their conduct and answer my questions is by reading records or reports or policies, and they've neglected to do that. So. Once you start to do that, sometimes you can get them to turn and, you know, see the light of day and maybe say, okay, well, you you know, um, I did review them. it was just a long time ago Or, or you give it to them right there. Or you could even say, if you're telling me you didn't review them and you're unprepared and you remember nothing about this, then you're comfortable with what the medical record says about it. Okay, well then now let's start talking about some hypotheticals. And you can remove them from your situation and ask them hypothetical questions that you know the records are going to then support that they were negligent about. Um, the, other, um, the other thing that I like to do, and, and you might have been on the um, end of some of these defending some of these nursing home cases, but- we're getting a
0: lot of flashback during this interview, just so you Yeah.
2: <laughs> when unprepared, as you like to call it, um, equals I don't know, I think that's an opportunity. So if, if they don't know a fact that could help them get out of a lawsuit or that could hurt you, then in a nice way, you need to ask that fact as many times as you can, as many different times as you can, which I think you defense lawyers when you were back in that uh, arena used to say is asked and answered. But you, know, you don't know now and you're, there's nothing that is going to help refresh your memory. You've looked at all the records and you still don't know. If I don't know means I don't know a standard or a rule or a policy, that's even better because I like to um, take that kind of answer and go into some witnesses go into what um, we like to call it, the free zone, and they're so confident in their answer that they're just willing to take it to its completely illogical extreme. So if someone says, I don't know what the standard of care requires for fall prevention, um, I say, well, you you don't know that now, and you've been a nurse today three years longer than you were when my client was your patient. So if you don't know it now, you certainly didn't know it then. Right. I I didn't know it then because now they're locked in and they feel silly and they have to go back and they just want to get out of there. Okay, well, so you didn't know it then. And by the way, no one at that nursing home ever told you that you needed to know it, right? Right. No one ever told me. No one ever showed you a policy. No one ever trained you. That's right. I, you know, no one ever told me about that. And not only that, but you were caring for patients at that nursing home for 10 years, many of whom were likely fall risks. Do you agree? Absolutely. And on not one single occasion were you ever trained, told, or informed about what it, you know, what it meant to assess a fall risk and what you had to know. And so there were likely tens if not thousands of patients uh, or hundreds if not thousands of patients who you cared for and you had no idea about what it meant to do fall prevention interventions. And by the way, your supervisors at that facility likely rounded and did spot checks and observed you caring for these residents. And not a single time did any one of them tell you, you know, you really need to start learning how to do so and so or such and such before. So if you take it kind of as far up the chain or as far as possible to the ridiculousness, you know, that is is just as good. So let me just back up. Um, if you are taking a depth and maybe it's the last step in a case where you've gotten a number of good admissions or facts or um, acquiescence to the rules, and your last witness doesn't know anything, isn't prepared, and maybe they're just not as, as meaningful, then I think the purpose of that deposition just becomes take them out as a witness. Make sure that they can't say anything useful to the defendant And you know, make sure I always do this at the end of a a dep where I'm shocked that the person doesn't know or doesn't have opinions. I, you know, have a little conversation with them at the end of the deposition where I say, you know, this case is going to go to trial one day. And I assume, you know, Mr. Smith is going to call you as a witness. And based on what you've told me in this deposition, you know, you don't have any opinions now about whether you complied with the standard of care. And you don't intend to develop those opinions between now and trial, right? And they always say yes, and then their lawyer objects, and I'll let you know, Margaret, if they develop these opinions. But, you know, you want to build, if they're being that coy with you in a deposition, you want to build some foundation for the event, which probably is, is more likely than not, that at trial they become smarter and more prepared and they want to give those opinions, So those are some of the things I do. But as I said, I could probably go on for another hour about that.
0: (laughs) That's kind of segues into my next question. Um, What are your suggestions for how attorneys uh, should approach their witnesses in terms of their demeanor? And does that change depending on who you're deposing?
2: So I think it it changes depending on who you're deposing and depending on who you are. Um, so one thing that just has worked for me is to try to start every depth by being polite and being, um, trying to be likable and trying to engage the witness because, um, they're vulnerable. They're in the hot seat. Um, they likely feel like they have an ally and their lawyer, although sometimes, you know, as you know, that there may be a little bit of friction between them and their lawyer and, I try to start by being nice and by bonding with the witness. And I've learned that over time, if you can get admissions the nice way and bond with the witness, um, it, you can maybe even push it further than if you're just being a jerk. Because sometimes when you're being aggressive or you're being a, a jerk, you might push the witness in the totally opposite way of staying, going even further against you, or wanting to defend themselves even more. Um, the other thing is is if they're being adversarial with me, I try not get to get adversarial back initially, because one thing I do is I videotape all my depositions. And so at trial, you know, I try to have the same demeanor, and I'm hoping the jury is thinking that I'm nice and I'm polite and I'm professional. And then they may see videos from the deposition where these witnesses are being nasty or looking aloof or rolling their eyes or not making eye contact or rolling their eyes and it's a totally different witness than they're likely seeing in the courtroom but they get to see the real picture so if if they get adversarial with me i i try initially to keep my cool and and just to soldier on and be nice Um, there are circumstances where you know that you're just not going to to be able to break through to a witness with kindness, and you just have to start being tougher and firmer. And um, you know, one thing that I think is advantageous um, as plaintiffs' lawyers is there are sometimes, and I know this is another topic, and and maybe it'll be the next one, but there are sometimes where a defense lawyer can do more harm than than good for their client. So. Uh, They want to protect their witness and they want to object, but they're making obnoxious speaking objections or they're objecting to things and they're saying, you know, if you know, or foundation and professional witnesses sometimes get really upset with that because if that kind of thing happens, I will have a tendency to say things like, you know, your lawyer's saying, if you know, I mean, you've been a nurse for 34 years and you were the head nurse at this facility for 10 years, you know, Right. And, you know, they're like, yeah, of course I know. And sometimes I can sort of see them, um, you know, like moving their chair further away from the defense lawyer during the death because they're now thinking, you know, this person wants to defend me, but they don't think I know what I'm talking about. And, and if you can drive a wedge between the defense lawyer and their own client by being reasonable and being polite and asking questions that you know they should know the answer to, um, you know, that obviously can score you some points. So I don't know, I try to, I try to kill them with kindness. And that has sometimes not worked. And I've had to um, be a little tougher. But I'm always professional, even if I'm tough, because I know that when it comes time to call these people at trial, you know, they may remember you if you're really nasty and want to kind of get you. Um, and also I've been able to demonstrate before to a judge where I've, you know, showed the judge a transcript of a particularly unruly witness and the judge was wavering on whether or not he would let me call them as an adverse witness. And because of how repeatedly, you know, unprofessional and, and idiotic they were to me. And despite my calm demeanor, I've gotten success with that, so I think it's 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 appropriate to be adversarial and firm with the, the the right person, but you always have to keep it professional.
0: Now you touched on this a little bit in your last answer, but how how what are some other techniques that you use in dealing with speaking objections or coaching from opposing mm-hmm. counsel during a
2: So first of all, speaking objections are not things; they're just they they exist because people do it, but they're not legal. I mean, they're not appropriate. And it's very funny when I have worked on cases, um, in other jurisdictions or with lawyers from other jurisdictions and they come to Illinois, they are flabbergasted by how, um, obscene some of the objections and the speaking and the coaching is during depositions. And they get really frustrated with it. And, I get frustrated with it too, but I've just come to kind of learn it's part of, of how it goes here. But the first thing that I do is, you know, I try to shut it down professionally. So, you know, again, because I videotape my depositions, everything I say, a judge is going to either see on the transcript or hear in the video. So the first thing I say is, if it were you, Matt, I would say, Matt, um, that's a speaking objection it's not appropriate objections are supposed to be legal and concise and you know depending on who your opponent is that's going to drive them crazy and want to to you know spur <clears throat> spur them to do it more or maybe give you a lecture on on the record i've been lectured by um, attorneys before about how they are you know they have 40 years of legal experience and they know what they're doing and you know i'm not going to tell them anything And I just keep, I start out, it's like a little titration. I start out, I just keep doing that. And then maybe I add in, you know, Matt, obviously I can't stop you if you want to be inappropriate and if you want to do these kinds of things. But I'm telling you right now that it's interfering with my ability to take this deposition. It's clearly confusing your own witness and it's not appropriate. And if it continues, I'm going to call the judge. And you have to, if you say that, be prepared to actually follow through with that. Um, Usually when I say that, I mean, usually the first or second time I say it, people start to calm down because I think people try to get away with it when they know that either they've had a depth with you before and they know you're not going to stop or they, you know, know they're being inappropriate, they will. Um, Sometimes this segues into the last uh, section that we discussed Sometimes their speaking objections actually cause their witness to start liking you more than them. So to the extent that that can happen, you know, I mean, that that's an added benefit. Um, but I do ultimately call the judge when it's totally inappropriate or it's interfering with the deposition. For the most part, if a lawyer's going to say over and over again, silly things like if you know, you know, it's annoying, but... It, it, usually I can kind of bust right through that and it doesn't um, interfere. I will tell you that when I've had to call judges, number one, most judges are totally receptive to this problem. They recognize right away, well, a speaking objection isn't appropriate. So I obviously don't have the transcript and I'm not going to rule on anything, but if speaking objections are being made, they need to stop. That frequently shuts it down too. Um, I have before with people who, who have gotten to be chronic objectors, like in the same case, I filed motions and asked for sanctions. And I've filed motions asking that depositions proceed in chambers. And I will tell you that every time I've submitted a deposition to a judge where there's a lot of speaking objections, the judges are horrified. And I don't think as plaintiff lawyers, we do it enough. Um, I know no one wants to be the tattletale, but you know, if you do it once or twice with the most chronic objectors um, in, in particular cases, you know, you're gonna find that they calm themselves down. And one of my colleagues even had the experience where um, a lawyer who, who did that, um, he had to terminate a deposition because the opposing counsel was objecting um, so much and, and in such an obstructive way that that lawyer, um, after the deposition that my partner terminated, he removed himself from the case, you know, because he just realized that he had behaved badly and and he couldn't control himself and, you know, he needed someone else to step in. So you definitely can ignore it, but if it's like harmless and the witness isn't really taking the clues, you know, you probably don't have to call the judge every time. of,
0: uh, switching gears just a little bit. Um, we were talking earlier about, you know, deposing like nurses and other medical personnel. Uh, what What is your take on the importance of probing, you know, what kind of training or in-servicing that they're being given at a facility, whether it be a hospital or a nursing home?
2: So it totally depends on your case. Um, but uh, in the circumstance that you inquired about earlier where someone is saying that they don't know or um, you know that they're not familiar with certain things I think probing about training is important because there's no doubt that one of their supervisors is gonna then be deposed and say I don't know what so-and-so is talking about of course we train on that Um, and then there's also times where like training and in-servicing just like isn't the right theory so sometimes like people just don't do the right thing despite knowing what they should n- n- be doing. So if it's like, you know, you know, cause you defended nursing homes and now you sue them that a lot of times in nursing homes, um, accidents happen because with the, the employees have to make a choice between going to get, you know, Miss Smith out of bed so she can have a breakfast and staying with Mr. Jones while he's on the toilet and both of them are fall risks. And which one can you save? Um, so in a case like that, you know, training isn't going to be quite as important. Although, you know, I, I guess I would say to, to that nurse, you know, didn't you learn in your training that if you felt you had too many, um, responsibilities and you were going to put someone's safety at risk that you should notify a supervisor and get help. So, I mean, it can always come back to training, but, um, you know, I think it, it's a case, um, case by case determination because I found especially in hospitals that, you know, the nurses there um, tend to be better trained and better prepared for depositions. And sometimes if you start probing into training, you know, and they start talking about all the great training that's being done, you know, there goes your training case. So it, it's, it really is is case dependent where I think um, it can become important is if you are alleging there's a lack of training and they have programs where they monitor or document the training that employees received and you can demonstrate that they didn't document that or they don't have those records or may, that they didn't do the training, then I think, you know, training becomes important. Um, I also know it, it. you referenced a case uh, that I had um tried to verdict in 2017, which was a nursing home case involving a medication error. And training ended up becoming really important in that case because the nurse who made the big mistake was a brand new nurse and she really wasn't trained to know or, you know, to be able to carry out the policies on medication management. So it did become important in that case and the the facility had A lot of policies that said they're supposed to train and monitor and and audit and they weren't really doing that so it it can be important in the right case
0: we talked a little bit earlier about um you know finding rules locking in witnesses into a framework for the way care is supposed to be delivered and then ideally focusing your deposition on getting admissions of rule violations uh, some witnesses, I know, are a little reluctant to go all the way to standard of care violations, but they will admit to policies, procedures, custom and practice violations, or, you know, things along that nature. To you as an attorney, does it matter what they're admitting to um, as far as, uh, you know, which one of those on the, that continuum?
2: Well, so so obviously the slam dunk is uh, here's the standard of care and I violated it in this case. Um, but if you build all of those things up and you get all of the predicates, and then you say, "So you agree then in this case that you violated the standard of care?" And they say, "No." Um, so what? I mean, at trial, it's one thing I have learned with those kinds of questions—you know, the big crescendo questions: "Did you violate the standard of care in this case?" It becomes very hard at trial for them to say no when they've either sat there throughout the trial and they've heard experts establish the rules. And that the jury already knows all the things that didn't happen. Um, And so the jury is already put together. There's the rule and we know all the things that didn't happen. And here's the nurse who we're going to ask about it. And so you ask her and she agrees, this is the rule. And she agrees that she didn't document that any of these things happened. And she can't remember that any of them did. And then you say, so did you break the rule? You know, she says no. And there's 12 citizens there they're going to be shaking their heads and, you know, starting to fold their arms and writing in their notebooks. So, um, you know, if, if a witness is unwilling to give you go all the way, you know, I, I, in my younger years, I might've tried to beat them up a little more in, you know, in, in my more, I guess, relaxed, knowing how these things bear out at trial, you know, I, I just get, here's the rule the rule is violated when this doesn't happen. There's no evidence it happened in this case. But as you sit here, you're saying you have no idea whether the standard of care was violated. You know, they just like end up looking silly or they say like, well, if it, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to give an opinion about someone else's care. You know, and it's like, well, okay, that, but you would agree that a reasonably careful nurse like yourself would have done that. So you can always kind of bring them back to that, but... the the biggest importance in establishing these rules is if you can't establish them with these individuals, you know you're going to be able to establish them through the institution's policies or likely through the expert witnesses that are retained by the defense. Because most expert witnesses have some level of professionalism and experience where they're not going to be able to answer a basic question no. Um, So... Anytime you can get, you know, admissions like someone violated the standard of care or here's the rule and it wasn't followed in this case, um, it's going to make it harder for those experts to defend the conduct of those individuals. But ultimately, you know, if the witness won't concede to the rule, they're going to be the ones that kind of look silly at trial.
0: You touched a little bit on this earlier, but uh, in depositions, one of the things that I know that you're looking to do is anticipate and undermine the defenses that you know are coming in your case. Uh, especially in nursing home cases, there's several of them that are commonly used. What, what are your thoughts and advice for how to undermine those defenses through depositions?
2: So you 100% before you take a, a deposition or before you really even take a case, Um, you need to come up with what the defenses are. And sometimes they're obvious because there will be defensive charting or notes or statements may be made in an investigation. Um, But sometimes, you know, it's not there. And so you have to think, you know, the person who's hired, the lawyer who's hired and paid, and many of these um, lawyers who defend these types of cases are very smart and experienced. And they've, you know, they've defended a case. What are they going to come up with or what are they going to think about? And so, um, I think you and I talked about some of these before we came on today, one of the big ones in nursing home cases is unavoidability and unavoidability really means despite all of our efforts, we tried and tried and tried, but this poor person fell and died. And that's one of those things, Matt, that I always have in my head about, okay, let's talk about unavoidability. To, uh, to say something's unavoidable, you have to show all the things you did to try to prevent it from happening, right? And then you go through kind of the whole process. Like, first, you have to recognize there's a risk. Did you do that in this case? No. Second, you have to make a plan to recognize or for the recognized risks. Well, since you never recognized the risk, you didn't have a plan. You know, third, if you get to the step where you have a plan, you have to implement it. Was it done in this case? So you've got to be prepared to break all of those defenses down logically, and you know one of the things that I think um, I, there's there's some fun ones that are like I think you probably now have have both prepared a witness to say this and probably prepared to dismantle a witness when they say this. But um, a new one that comes up is policies and procedures are guidelines. You know they're not to be followed. They're they're just guidelines. Okay, well. Tell me the name of the person at your institution who told you that. I guarantee you. Try try using that, and it it becomes an amazing answer. I mean, a lot of the times the witnesses say, "Well, no one at the nursing home told me that." Well, who told you that? Well, I don't know if I can say. Was it your lawyer? You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff. So you've got to be prepared to to take those policies and procedures as guidelines to the, to the craziest degree. You're telling me that someone at this nursing home took the time to write 1000 policies that pertain to every topic you could imagine might come up in a nursing home. And what they told you when they were training you and orienting you was, these are just guidelines. I mean, do it or don't do it. You know, it doesn't really matter to us. And so when you kind of talk through that and you figure out the um, how silly it sounds, you can probably talk them into taking that back, or if not, you'll talk them so far into being so wild on that topic that it will be fun to use at trial.
0: One of the things that I recall from my days out of the defense is that you and other attorneys at your firm would often ask nurses kind of medical proximate cause questions during the depositions. I always found that interesting. What, What are your thoughts about Uh, that technique during a deposition?
2: So I think, um, I think we both know from having tried cases in Illinois, that if it comes to trial, and you ask a nurse, um, did your, you know, failure to give this medication cause a stroke? um, Someone's going to object, you know, to either 213 or foundation, and it's going to be sustained. But what I think, is the point of doing things like that in depositions is it's not really to establish proximate cause. It's to establish that this witness knows the consequences of not providing good care. So the reason you're giving this stroke medication is because you've been trained and told that people who are at risk for strokes need blood thinners. And if they don't get their blood thinners, they might form a clot that can travel to their brain and cause a stroke. And you know that if people have strokes, they can have devastating consequences, even life-threatening consequences. And so if you get that, I I think a lot of people believe that that that's proximate cause testimony, but it's really just establishing that they know the risks and the consequences of not following the rule. And so sure, I mean, you can say to um, a nurse, hey, um, well, let me actually, let me modify that. In a nursing home case, I think there's some proximate cause testimony that nurses can give. So, for example, in a fall case, if um, if a person is designated as a two person transfer, and the reason they need two people is because they're um, you know so dependent on others, they don't they can't stand on their own, they can't even really use their um, arms to help help you with the transfer. They're just totally dependent. And it turns out that, you know, at dinnertime at this particular nursing home, there's not enough staff to use two people to transfer. And so a one-person transfer was being used, and you get that nurse in a deposition, and she, could, you know, candidly admits that I had to, you know, do the transfer by myself because no one was around to help you. You can say, well, well wait a minute, how many times have you cared for Mrs. Jones? You know, I've cared for Mrs. Jones every day for, for three months, you know, or five times a week for three months. And every day that you transferred Mrs. Jones, when you had two people to transfer her from her bed to her chair, you were able to do it successfully without injuring her. Sure. And on this particular day, because you only had one person, you were not able to do it successfully without injuring her. Yes. And you would agree that the reason that you injured her on this occasion is because you didn't have that other staff. So I think that is a proximate cause opinion or or proximate cause testimony, but I think it's within a nurse's purview to be able to say that. It's just common sense kind of stuff. Um, So I think think that's where I would draw the distinction between the establishing the known risks type of causation stuff and then actually getting causation testimony.
0: Uh, Additionally, in, in your depositions, I know that you're not only trying to establish liability, but establish your damages case as well. What advice would you have about how to elicit testimony on things like pain and disability from defense witnesses?
2: So I think that pain and disability testimony from defense witnesses can be some of the most credible testimony. And, you know, most likely that testimony is going to be elicited when they've um, made notes about that in the records. So I, I had said before, and I'll modify this for the circumstance um, that you just presented, that it's silly to establish things that are in medical records um, in a deposition if they're, they've already been written. I think pain and suffering testimony and disability testimony from the defendant's own witnesses is an exception because not only do you have them saying that you know they wrote it on paper, but you have them say in the deposition, yes, I observed this person in pain. And yes, it was so much pain I had to give her medication. or I had to call a doctor for um, the pain. And sometimes, depending on the witness, you can even get them to go further if they, you know, remember the, the resident or maybe they had a particular relationship with the resident. I recently deposed someone in a um, case where a woman was dropped in a Hoyer lift or from a Hoyer lift. And although this wasn't in the record, I was asking one of the witnesses, taking them through step-by-step what happened, and, you know, she told me that after the witness was on the floor, you know, that she was moaning and and sobbing, and that was not in the medical records. And so I think she, she sort of mistakenly gave it to me because I said, what did she say after about how it happened? And the nurse said, well, she didn't say because she was moaning and sobbing. And so um, I think that can be really credible and it's important. Um, One thing I like to do in wound cases, I don't know if I ever did this to you when you were a defense lawyer, but I like to ask um, nurses, what does an infected wound smell like? And honestly, some of the answers you get, I got one nurse who said it was, um, have you ever smelled a rotten egg? And I said, yeah. And she said, what about a dead mouse? No, I've never smelled a dead mouse. Okay. Well, an infected wound smells about somewhere between a rotten egg and a dead mouse. And I said, well, like, how do you smell it? Oh, you can smell it coming down the hall. I mean, so now we've just established that this poor, immobile little old lady in a nursing home not only has a giant hole in her back, but every minute of every hour that this wound was infected, she lived in a room where she was smelling somewhere between a rotten egg and a dead mouse. And not only was she smelling it, but all of her family members who were visiting her were smelling it too. So, I mean, you you can get creative and you should try and get creative and get some of that testimony from the defendant's own witnesses.
0: That's certainly a creative description. I've never heard that one before. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I know, especially in, you know, nursing home uh, cases and some hospital cases, depending on what's going on, you're looking to kind of show that the failures in care that caused the harm were systemic in nature and not just the result of individual misconduct? What are some effective methods that you've used to accomplish that?
2: So I think think where that really um, shines through is, you know, sometimes you have a CNA or a nurse who you feel, you know, really... Um, they really cared, and they really tried to do their job, and they probably are the right person to work in a nursing home. But because of decisions that were made long before, you know, our client entered the building, they weren't set up the right way to be able to do their job as well as it needed to be done. So um, <clears throat> when that happens, and, and, and you know sort of what I'm, what I'm getting at here, Un- nursing homes are chronically understaffed. Um, you know, there are many people who are working at nursing homes um, who, you know, probably it's just a job to them, and and they're not really as as caring or as as suited for that position. Um, management is under pressure to increase the census or the number of residents there in the facility and decrease the expenses. One of the biggest expenses is staffing, um, and so I think that's the right theme to develop where you can establish those things. And and, and sometimes you get those from the witnesses themselves. Um, I've had witnesses who they really feel awful about the fact that they had to leave their, their resident on the toilet to go answer another call light. And, you know, I'll say, well, why did you make that decision? And, you know, they may be coy about it for a while, but ultimately it comes out well because we didn't have enough staff was this the first time that you didn't have enough staff? No. And in fact, I complained about it almost every day. And so if you can, you know, manage the um, failures all the way up to the the top of the food chain there, you really can say, you know, this system was set up to fail. And although nurse so-and-so violated the standard of care and, you know, that may have been the ultimate result here, it really started with, the decision not to put, you know, two nurses on the floor during the night shift. And I think in the right case, if the jury is is sympathetic to the individual nurse, it gives them a way to still hold, you know, the facility accountable for what happened because it shouldn't have happened, Um, but, you know, maybe feel less guilty or less badly about blaming the individual who really was powerless to prevent it from happening
0: kind of staying with the the corporate aspect of medical care um in illinois we have rule 206a1 the federal rule is 30b6 uh, which are corporate rep or corporate designee depositions uh, where are you on the utility of using these depositions in the nursing home and hospital cases
2: so um i am 100 percent for them um in most cases so one of the challenges of Uh, discovering a nursing home case is that very often the people who you need answers for are no longer at the facility, or facilities changed ownership, or there's a different administrator or DON in charge. And so when you're getting your discovery answers, even though you're supposed to be getting them from someone with knowledge, they really don't have knowledge. And so when I get frustrated with what I feel are, you know, avoidance or delay or kind of obstructive tactics with written discovery. That's when I would invoke 206A1. And I would say, I want you to designate someone who knows all the answers to all these questions. So I can just knock it out in one day and we can find out once and for all what's going on. And I've done that before. And, um, you know, unfortunately, more often than not, what it demonstrates is how little the person who they've designated as the corporate rep knows. So it doesn't necessarily um, supplement what I need to know about the case. But bringing that before a judge is extremely effective. And if a judge sees that there's been obstruction in written discovery, and now the person that you designated, you know, knows nothing, the judge is going to start issuing some orders that you know, are are sure to turn up the documents and the information that you are interested in. And the other thing I think it can do is it can cut down on um, the number of depositions that you take in a case. So if you can have one person explain the way the different departments work together, or the policies in place, or, you know, the way staffing was done, or who worked on what shift and how it worked and who was responsible for what, you know, and then you get that all you really have to do then in the right case is just to pose the fact witnesses, the people who were, you know, there when it happened. I mean, especially as you know, in a pressure sore case where there could be hundreds of people who were responsible for preventing or treating pressure sores in the given life of a pressure sore. And if you can get one person, you know, who's knowledgeable about the facility's plan and program to prevent and treat them and, and this particular resident and their care, That may be all you need and I am all for trying to simplify the discovery process. I think we take too many depositions in Illinois. I think we, you know, have too long to discover a case and I think a lot of time and money is wasted and I don't really get it because um, particularly where the nursing home arena is concerned, the more work that's done on the case, you know, that may generate more attorney's fees for the plaintiff if, you know the plaintiff at the end of the case is successful. So it, it it it's silly to me that it happens. But you know that's one of the things that we have to um, use at our disposal to combat some of those tactics.
0: All right, Margaret, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate you talking to us for this long. Um, if someone wants to get a hold of you to ask a question or refer a case, what's the best way to do that?
2: Um, so I think if you go to Levin and Percanti, you'll see my profile there. My email is MPB at LevinPercanti.com. And my direct line is 312-516-1137. And I'm always, um, happy to take referrals, but also to help other attorneys with their cases. Cause I, I think it's important on, on our side to be collegial and, and sometimes, you know helping to brainstorm a case comes up, um, with good ideas that you can implement on your next cases. So thanks for having me on.
0: Margaret Batteries in Black. Thank you very much.
1: Well, that was a tremendous interview. I mean, man, what, uh, what a deep dive, what incredible insight. Uh, that was awesome. I mean, when you're, when you were talking with her, what are you thinking as you're going through that interview? Cause it, it was a lot of really, really high level, great information.
0: I mean, I've known Margaret for such a long time, and I've been on the receiving end of so many depositions of her and her partners and the other lawyers at her firm that, like I said, at one point during, I'm getting flashbacks from, you know, hearing all this information and thinking about, you know, all the times I've been in their conference room, and this is happening to me or my witness, and, you know, A, I'm glad I'm not up against her, uh, but it's, it's a lot, it's great information. I know it works. I've seen it work. And I know it works because you know we talked about in the beginning that she had you know a ton of really big settlements in the past year, and, and you get great settlements. People don't want to go to trial against you because you undercut their case during depositions, and, and that's what makes her and her firm so effective. Is that they take rep- great depositions. The defense attorney's got to report it to their carrier. They need to tell them, listen, our witness, you know, admitted to X, Y, and Z. You know, we're not going to. We're not going to have a real solid defense at trial. We need to talk about resolving this case. So great depositions lead to great settlements. And I think that, you know, the proof's in the pudding with her.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think she wins cases at deposition. I've actually seen transcripts. It's funny. I've seen transcripts where defense counsel has said to her or people at her firm on the record, I understand you're just trying to win the case here in the deposition, but I object to blah, blah, blah. That's exactly what they're doing. They're winning the case at deposition. And you can do that um, if you employ a lot of these tools, I think. Um, But there's other tools that we like to use. And so that kind of brings us full circle to our 30-second trial tip of the day. So what's your 30-second trial tip of the day, Matt?
0: Sure. I I was thinking about this. You know, I have a couple of cases that are supposed to be going to trial later this year. We'll see what happens. Um, But I'm dealing with this one case in particular that's in my mind. And my trial tip is embrace your case's flaws. You know, every case has good facts, every case has bad facts. And sometimes the bad facts, upon first impression, don't end up being ultimately bad facts for you if you think about them in the right way, if you present them in the right way. You know, I I have a client uh, who was injured in a car accident and she had uh, addiction issues. And we were all really concerned. She was concerned, her family was concerned that that was going to become an issue and a focal point of her deposition and ultimately. That'll be a focal point of her cross-examination at trial. And at first, you know, the thought, at least from her, is like, you know, we need to bury this. It's not relevant. You know, it doesn't really matter. It has nothing to do with my injury. It has nothing to do with what caused the accident. And I agreed with her on all those points. But at the end of the day, that has kind of become a part of who she is, a part of her life. And she has struggled and she has overcome and she has worked through that. And it made me, th- and she, and also the jury. The last thing you want to do is be perceived as hiding information from the jury. You know, the jury wants to hear everything from you. If you're going to be the good, the bad, the ugly, if you're not presenting it to the jury, it seems like you're hiding it, and you need to present it in a way that makes sense to you. And the benefit of being the plaintiff is we get to go first. We get to put on our case first, and so what you can do is you know, kind of put it out there, put it out there in the way that you want that information to be presented. And then it seems like you're the honest broker in the scenario. So embrace your case's flaws, put all the information out there, the good, the bad, the ugly in your way. And I think the jury will reward you for it.
1: Yeah, I agree. Front the bad stuff, take ownership of it. Don't shy away from it. It enhances your credibility, right? Absolutely. Um, So that's awesome. My, my 32nd trial tip of the day is learn the medicine Um, you cannot go into any of these depositions with treaters with healthcare professionals with experts if you don't know what you're talking about you cannot wing it you have to do the research you have to learn the medicine you have to understand it so that you can communicate it back to the experts the other thing that you need to be able to do is make sure that you're not missing something because you don't understand it a lot of times you know, experts can distinguish between a disc herniation and a disc bulge. Those are different things to neurologists. They may not be different things to a chiropractor or a physical therapist, but if you're in the deposition of a neurologist and you're using a phrase that you think is proper, they're not going to give you the testimony that you want because you didn't learn the distinctions and the differences in the medicine. The nuances are really important. I'm not saying you need a medical degree. I'm not saying you need to be able to be as conversant or intelligent as the smartest person in the room, the experts. But you need to understand what they're saying so that they don't weaponize the medicine against you.
0: Absolutely, the details are so important, particularly the medicine. You really got to dig deep and you know understand what the important medical aspects of your case. Couldn't agree more.
1: And that's our episode today. I want to thank Margaret Battersby Black for coming on, giving us such amazing information. Um, we'll have to have her back for like a part two because it seems like there's just a wealth. Of information when it comes to depositions, experts, trial, everything else. Um, so very, very awesome. Excited today.
0: Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas at on trial at gmail.com or troll us at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ontrialpodcast. trial
1: uh, Please also rate, leave us feedback on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, help us get the word out, share this. And if you're interested in uh, having a conversation with us about what you do at trial and how you win at trial, uh, let us know. We'd love to have you. And until next time, I'm John Risvold. I'm Matt Heimlich. We'll see you on trial.